0: Well, if you came here tonight wanting to know if Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist, (laughs) in light of Charlie's comments about OSU, he's already laid claim to that office, so. (laughs) (laughs) You're too young anyway, so don't worry about it. What a privilege it is to be with you all tonight. I'm so incredibly honored. And by the way, I don't want any comments, questions, or anything else that begins with Dr. Storms. It's Sam, please. All right. Got that out of the way. Uh, I do hope that all of you have a copy of the handout. Uh, If if you don't, you're going to be lost. Whoops. That was in my pocket. I better be careful. So really, you need to look on with somebody, or if they have more that are being produced, raise your hand and get one as they come in, because we're really going to be tied tightly to uh, this document and these various scenarios that I've laid out for you. I want to begin by saying that I hope you hear this initial comment um, and believe it, and that it shapes your life and the way you approach the subject of eschatology. There is one thing that all of us share in common, I hope and pray, and that is we believe that Jesus Christ is returning physically, personally, visibly to consummate his kingdom on this earth. That's what unites us, all of the other variables, all the other interpretive schemes, all the other um, positions that we tend to fight over and divide over. Please, I just ask, don't do that. Disagree, hold your views with deep conviction, but please know that the one thing that we cherish that unites us all is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Because eschatology ultimately is about Jesus. It's about who he is, his purposes in the earth, and his return to consummate all that the Father has ordained. Now, what we're going to do tonight in the time that I have, and I'll try to uh, watch the clock as closely as I possibly can I'm going to survey for you the various eschatological options, and if I didn't have that handout, you would probably get lost um, in the weeds of all of the details, and I don't want that to happen. So I hope you can follow along on the chart or look over somebody's shoulder so that you'll know what exactly is happening. I want to start by just saying a few words about what is undoubtedly the dominant view of biblical eschatology, or the end times. In fact, uh, when I wrote my book on amillennialism several years ago, I, I went to Mardell's in Edmond, and I counted all of the books in the section titled Prophecy and End Times. There were 117 of them. And then I went back and looked more closely and discovered that 102 of the 117 were arguing for the same position. And that pretty much reflects very likely the breakdown of all of you here tonight and certainly across the broad expanse of the evangelical world. So I want to begin with that particular position and I just want to lay it before you. I'm not going to critique it. Uh, In fact, I'm really not going to critique any of the positions. I'm just going to present what I believe the Bible teaches and you can then make your own conclusions. But the dominant view is known as dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialism. Now don't freak out if you've never heard those big words before, I'm gonna explain them as simply as I possibly can. This is the view that I was taught. I was raised in the Southern Baptist tradition. It's the only view that we ever heard. Uh, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, which is probably the premier school uh, that defends this particular point of view. Anytime another view might be raised, it was um, approached as uh, less than faithful to scripture and perhaps people who embrace that view are, are drifting um, theologically and spiritually. So we never really had a chance to, by the way, JJ's bringing more copies, so if you don't have one, raise your hand and get one. Um, so that's the view that I was taught consistently. It's probably the view that most of you were raised in and that most of you probably still embrace today. Many of you have never been told that there is an alternative. So when I was in Dallas, and this would have been in about 1980, I was on staff at a church that had a rich uh, heritage from Dallas Theological Seminary. And I embraced the notion that the rapture of the church was going to occur after the tribulation. And you would have thought that I denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I say that simply because it reflects how deeply ingrained and how personal this particular view is to people, and sometimes it feels a, as a threat to their spiritual welfare to be told that maybe there's another perspective in Scripture. There's also the, the fact that those who embrace this view are more inclined than others to see in current events the uh, fulfillment of biblical prophecy and perhaps signs that the Lord Jesus Christ is very near to returning. So what I want to do is I want you to take that handout and I want to just walk you through this first scenario. This is one that probably most of you will immediately and intuitively recognize because it's likely the view that you hold. It's called pre-tribulational pre Now notice if you would on the chart, I'm working from left to right and I have eight specific points that I want to highlight and I'll give a brief explanation of what each one is at the bottom. So let me just begin by walking you through this. Number one is obvious. This is the period of the Old Testament leading up to the coming of Christ, which you see represented by the cross. Uh, The coming of Christ, according to this view, was designed to offer to the people of Israel the fulfillment and the consummation of all the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And according to this view, the one that I was taught, Israel as a whole rejected Jesus as Messiah and crucified him And as a result of that, God then, as it were, temporarily suspended his operations among the people of Israel, and he began to call out for himself a people from among the Gentiles. And so, point number three, as you can see, represents the present age in which we live. Now, I have no idea where we are in that number three there. Some would say we're closer to the cross than we are to the second coming. Others would say, no, the second coming is probably tomorrow. Well, I hope and pray that it is. In fact, Jesus can come back right now and interrupt this whole night as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Number four, I want you to notice the scheme as I've tried to portray there. And by the way, you have to realize um, when I first produced these charts, uh, I had no idea how to work graphic stuff in a computer. I'm a technological idiot. And so most of this was done with a ruler and a pen. So you just have to forgive the, the ancient hieroglyphics here. Number four, notice the downward arrow. That represents the descent of Christ in the heavens. Notice the upward arrow. That's not an X, by the way, in the middle. That's the intersection of the descent of Christ from heaven and the rapture of the church to meet him in the air. So according to this view, the rapture of the church, the translation, the catching away, some call it the great snatch, all living believers caught up into the heavens to meet Christ in the air. And then notice the little jutted out line that has the upward arrow. That's the church returning with Christ into heaven. And according to this scheme, that inaugurates or launches what is often referred to as the great tribulation. Now you notice that I have described this as Daniel's 70th week. That gets us into the weeds far beyond what we can go tonight. But basically this view says that Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, prophesied 70 weeks for the consummation of God's purposes. And the 70th week is yet future. And it's a week of years. So it's seven years divided into two sections, each of them three and a half years apiece. According to this view, when the church is raptured out of the earth, the Antichrist will emerge, probably he's already been alive on the earth, and he will initiate a covenant with the nation Israel. The temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, sacrifices will once again be offered, there will be a period of peace and prosperity, basically for three and a half years. Then you'll notice right there in the middle of that Daniel's 70th week, that little vertical Um, notation, the Antichrist will break the covenant with Israel and will launch a massive and horrific persecution of them during the last three and a half years of this tribulation period. Now notice number five. It looks more like an S, but it's a number five. This, according to this view, is the second coming itself. So notice Christ comes back in two phases according to this scenario comes back before the tribulation, raptures the church. That's why, by the way, it's called pre-tribulationism, before the tribulation. The second coming is point number five. And notice that arrow, Christ comes all the way to the earth. And it is at that time that he engages the Antichrist, the battle of Armageddon, and all the unbelieving nations of the world and destroys them once and for all. This inaugurates what, we, what they call the earthly millennial kingdom. Now at the beginning of the earthly millennial kingdom, Satan is taken and he is thrown into the abyss, he's imprisoned, and it says that he is restricted there for a period of a thousand years. So number six, notice number six, is that period of time that is typically referred to as the earthly millennial kingdom. And it's during this time that Satan is in the abyss, he's chained, he is not allowed to uh, affect any kind of work or effort uh, throughout the earth and during this millennial kingdom Jesus rules for a thousand years from Jerusalem. Now again there are variations depending on who you read but some would argue that during this thousand years the Levitical sacrifices of the Old Testament are reinstituted, many of the mosaic rituals come back into play and that it's a 1,000 years of peace and prosperity on the earth. Then, number seven, Satan is released from his prison. He orchestrates and deceives the nations and gathers them for one final global assault against the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, defeats Satan and the nations of the earth That inaugurates what we call the great white throne judgment. That's number seven. That's the final judgment. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. And then is the inauguration of what we call the new heavens and the new earth. You read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. So that's essentially the view that is embraced by far and away the majority of Christian men and women throughout the earth. I was just wondering, I was, you all were looking up there and I was thinking, do they have the scheme up there? They, they don't, that's fine. Now, one final word. People often ask, what is the purpose of this great tribulation? Well, I've mentioned it at the bottom of that page. It's twofold. Number one, to judge the unbelieving world for its rejection of Jesus Christ and worship of the beast. Now, quick little point here. This view argues that the book of Revelation is largely concerned with this seven-year period. In other words, those who embrace this view interpret the book of Revelation in almost an entirely futuristic sense, beginning with chapter 4, extending through chapter 19, is describing what's going to transpire just within this seven-year period. The seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments that you read about in Revelation, they're poured out during the seven-year period. And that, again, is God's judgment against an unbelieving world. The second purpose of the tribulation is to prepare the nation Israel through suffering for her restoration at the second coming and her time with Jesus on the earth during the millennial kingdom. Now, I hope I didn't lose you that. So I hope that was clear enough. And most of you probably say, yeah, that's the view I've always been taught. That's the view that I believe. Don't tell me, Sam, that you're going to disagree with it. Well, I'm sorry, but I am. Now, notice the next page. It's called mid-tribulationism. Basically, everything in this view is the same as the pre-tribulational perspective. The only difference, obviously, is in that little word, mid. And it's designed to indicate that they believe the rapture occurs after the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So the church will enter into the tribulation period, but it won't be a time of oppression and persecution and martyrdom. Because the church will be raptured out in the midpoint and then the persecution and the oppression will come to pass in the last three and a half years. Basically everything else in this scheme is the same as the pre-tribulation view. Now there is one variation. I didn't give you the chart for it because it really it's kind of difficult to portray. There is a view that's very much a minority position. I hardly hear anyone or writing about it today. It's called the partial rapture view. And according to this view, the only people who are raptured are Christians who are mature, godly, who love the Lord's coming and are looking for it in great anticipation. The rest of people, although they're still believers, they will be left on earth during the tribulation period. That's a very much a minority view and it really doesn't have any basis in scripture at all. All right, go to the next one. The post tribulational premillennial view. This is the view that I embraced in about 1981 or 1982 that caused such a furor in the church where I was pastoring in Dallas, Texas at the time. And I, I realize why, and I understand this, so please don't take offense when I say this. Um, the expectation, the hope, the belief that Jesus is going to come back and get me out of this world before it gets really bad, is something that is held in a very deep and sincere and passionate way in the the hearts of many Christians. Let me just say this, and I just want you to take this to heart. If our brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the world, those, for example, in North Korea, in prison camps, or in... Iran or in certain regions of Africa or places where persecution has been unimaginably horrific where they are beaten all their property is confiscated they're thrown in prison they're tortured many of them martyred and they would hear us in the west talk about oh how much I cherish the thought that I'm going to be brought out of this before any of that happens to me do you realize how offensive that would be to them I mean, to talk about a coming tribulation, they would say, are you kidding? (laughs) We've been living it our entire lives. And the persecution of the global church uh, really, in a sense, ought to rebuke us in the West for our expectation that somehow we're going to be delivered from that kind of suffering. But that being said, the post-tribulational view basically says points one, two, and three are the same as the pre-tribulational scheme. The last generation of the church will remain on the earth for the entirety of the tribulation period. Again, notice the downward descent of number four. That's the descent of Christ in the heavens. The upward arrow pointing to the rapture of the church. And then notice this time, instead of the arrow pointing back up, it now points down, indicating that after the church is caught up to meet Christ in the air, transformed, glorified, we continue to join Christ in his earthly descent, at which time, number five, ethnic Israel will be converted. That's the belief of most post-tribulationists. And we will enter into the earthly millennial kingdom. So this view is also premillennial. Again, let me make sure you understand these words. My wife, she she's constantly on me. I don't know what those big words mean. Now, what is the pre and post and mid? Okay, so listen carefully. It's One view is pre-tribulational because the rapture, according to that view, occurs before or pre the tribulation. It's pre-millennial because the second coming happens pre or before the millennial kingdom. That's pretty simple to remember, isn't it? So just think of the pre and the post and put them in relationship to the rapture and the second coming. Now, I will say one thing. Not all who embrace the post-tribulational view necessarily would argue that the tribulation is specifically seven years in length. Many of them, maybe even the majority of them, do believe that there will be an increased time of great tribulation and persecution and the oppression of the people of God. But they wouldn't limit it to specifically seven years. It might be shorter, it might be longer. But it's important to realize that they do believe that the church will be on the earth during that period of time. Now, turn the next page to the truth. I'm, I'm sorry, to the. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you all are humorous and humored. You need to be. All right. I want to set before you what is known as the ah millennial view. Now, first of all, that's a bad label. Notice, if you would, I've got in parentheses beneath it what is now being called realized millennialism because. When you hear the word "ah" millennial, what do you immediately think? Oh, you don't believe in a millennium. Actually, we use the word "ah" political or um, "ah" moral, or even in today's world "ah" sexual. That alpha privative negates whatever is being stated. Please understand, I believe in a literal millennium. I just disagree with the nature of it and the timing of it and the place of it from the views that we've just looked at. So again, don't be put off by the ah in front of the word millennialism. Now, as I said, I was raised in the dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial view. How in the world did I come to embrace the amillennial view? What, what in Scripture would have convinced me of that? Well, there are two things. What I did, and I would recommend that you do this as well, I sat down over the course of a week and I read through the entire New Testament, and I wrote down everything the New Testament said would happen when Jesus Christ returns. It's a fascinating study to conduct. And I discovered that there were a number of things that I simply could not deny, realities that will come to pass when our Lord returns. Let me mention them to you. I saw rather convincingly from 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus Christ returns, all physical death will end, The last enemy, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, is death. Paul says in verses 50 to 57, death is swallowed up in victory. So when Jesus comes back, there's no more physical death. He has conquered it once and for all. In relationship to that, it's very interesting that in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says death is swallowed up in victory, that's from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. And the second half of Isaiah 25, verse 8, refers, and you know this verse well, that he will wipe away all our tears. Now, the interesting thing about that is that that statement is found in Revelation 21 that describes what will happen when the new heavens and the new earth comes. You remember an open, those opening seven verses of chapter 21? He will wipe away all tears. There'll be no more mourning, no more death, no more uh, sorrow or sadness, the former things have passed, all things are made new. And I thought, well, wait just a minute. If Paul is talking about the fulfillment of Isaiah 25a, that's happening at the second coming, and John says that the wiping away of tears happens at the time of the new heavens and new earth, those two events must be simultaneous. Well, according to the premillennial view, they're not. There's a thousand years in between them. And I thought, That's strange. And so Isaiah 25, 8 became another factor in my journey. Third, I realized, especially from Romans chapter 8, that the curse imposed on the natural creation will be lifted and and the natural world will be redeemed at the same time as we, God's people experience our final redemption and we get our glorified bodies. You read Romans 8, 18 to 25, you'll see that they are very much intertwined. You remember after the fall of Adam, God placed the natural world under a curse. You know, the tornadoes we just saw in southern Oklahoma, uh, wildfires, tsunamis, uh, all of the environmental pollution that exists in our world, COVID-19, pestilences, all these things that afflict the earth as a result of the fall, will be utterly eradicated. It'll be done away, and the earth will experience a certain redemption and glorification. And Romans 8 says it's going to happen at the same time that we experience the redemption of our bodies. I thought, oh, wait a minute, when does that happen? It happens when Jesus Christ returns. Now, just keep your mind on track with these. I'm going to tell you why this is all significant in just a moment. Next, I read in 2 Peter 3 that Christians are living in expectation of the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. I thought, wait a minute, according to the premillennial view, that won't happen until a thousand years after the second coming. But it seemed to me that 2, Corinthians, 2 Peter 3 is saying that it happens at the same time as the second coming. And then um, it seems rather clear from a number of texts that this period in which we now live, the church age, is the time of salvation and when Jesus Christ returns all hope for salvation ends and then I also saw as I kept reading these texts that there is one resurrection of both believer and non-believer that happens at the time of the second coming and furthermore that at the second coming all non-believers will be judged and all non-believers will be cast into hell separated from Christ forever now if you've been listening to all those points you're saying to yourself what's the big deal Sam oh I gotta keep stop doing that what's the big deal well here's the big deal if you are premillennial you can't believe any of those things why because according to the premillennial scheme after the second coming of Jesus Christ during the course of this earthly millennium people will still die physically The earth, the natural creation, will still be under the curse because unbelievers will live upon it, and it will continue to suffer from their presence and the pollution that might result. According to the premillennial scheme, the wiping away of tears, as I said, doesn't happen until after the 1,000 years. Furthermore, the new heavens and new earth doesn't come until a 1,000 years after the second coming. According to the premillennialists, salvations will still occur during the 1,000-year period. And furthermore, the resurrection of unbelievers won't happen at the time of the second coming. That happens a thousand years later, just before the new heavens and the new earth. Also, the judgment of non-believers won't occur at the second coming. That occurs a thousand years later. And the casting of all unbelievers into the lake of fire or separated from Christ forever. According to premillennialism premillennialism happens a thousand years after the second coming. I kept saying, wait just a minute. I'm reading all these things that happen at the second coming because of it. And if that's really true, that precludes the possibility that there could be another thousand years of history in which all of these things continue to exist that the New Testament tells me end. They're terminated when Jesus Christ comes back. So I'm I'm confronted with this, and I honestly at first didn't know what to do with it. And it became clear to me that um, when Jesus Christ comes back, the judgment occurs for all people, the resurrection occurs for all people, the creation is redeemed, the new heavens and the new earth comes to pass, all hope for salvation ends, physical death is over, all tears are wiped away, and the new heavens and the new earth begins Immediately. And I kept saying, where in that scheme can I slip in this 1,000-year period of earthly rule? And the answer was, I can't. And that's what sealed uh, this journey in my own heart and mind toward amillennialism. Now, the second thing that convinced me uh, to be amillennial, and I can't get into it now, maybe in the Q&A we can, is that I began to study Revelation 20, which talks about the millennial kingdom, And realized that my interpretation of it as a premillennialist was flawed and I suddenly realized there is a really superior explanation of that text from an amillennial point of view. So now, all that being said, let me walk you through this scheme, this scenario that I think is reflective of the teaching of Scripture. Notice if you would, obviously the period of the Old Testament, there to the left of the cross, The cross there is designed to represent the coming of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. As you know, when Jesus came to this earth, he inaugurated and fulfilled the promise of the coming kingdom. Now, it's important you know something. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God didn't just appear for the first time. You read the Psalms. God has ruled as king over the nations and the earth forever. But with the coming of Jesus The expression, the manifestation of his kingly rule took on a new dimension, far more expansive. Satan is defeated. Demonized people are set free. Uh, The sick are healed. People are forgiven of their sins. Um, They enter into a new degree of intimacy with the Lord. So the kingdom of God was inaugurated with the first coming of Christ. The result of his coming, we sang about it just a moment ago, the church of Christ was born, especially on the day of Pentecost. It was at that time that, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, God had created one new man. See, up until then, God's saving work was predominantly done among those who were ethnic Jews. But with the coming of Christ and the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, now God's work is extended to ethnic Gentiles, which is probably the majority of us here, and it creates one new man. There's only one people of God. Now, let me just pause right there. I used the word dispensational a moment ago to describe the pre-tribulational, premillennial view. You're wondering, what is that? I can't go into detail, but at the very heart of dispensationalism is the belief that God has two covenant peoples with two promises and two different inheritances yet to come. The people of Israel on the one hand and the church of Jesus Christ on the other. That is not how I understand it. In fact, I'll just tell you real quickly, how this happened in my life. It was my second year in seminary, and I was in a course on the Greek exegesis of the book of Ephesians. And I say at random, I think it was providential. At random, the professor assigned a paragraph in Ephesians to each of the students to write our exegetical term paper on. And he assigned me Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. That passage wrecked my dispensationalism, because there Paul says, That during the time of the Old Covenant, Gentiles were separated from Christ. They had no part in the commonwealth of Israel. They were alienated from the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But with the coming of Christ and the shedding of his blood, Gentiles now have been brought near and have been made fellow heirs and fellow citizens in the kingdom of God and the household of God. In other words, God has taken believing Jews and believing Gentiles and made them one. That's what Paul says is the one new man. You read about this in Revelation chapter 11, talks about this one olive tree, one people of God. But in that olive tree, remember how he describes it? There are natural branches and unnatural branches. The natural branches are believing ethnic Jews, unnatural branches believing ethnic Gentiles. But they're one people. So with the coming of Christ and the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, I believe this distinction between Israel and the church. Is no more. They are now co-heirs of the same promises. So, just I want to encourage you with this. (laughs) If you're a Gentile, you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you are an heir to all the promises made to Abraham. If you doubt that, read Galatians chapter 3 verses 16 to the end of the chapter where he says that we are in fact the seed of Abraham if we are in Christ and therefore heirs according to the promise. Now, let's walk through this the rest of the way so I can try to make sense of it to you. Notice that up above the, the lower horizontal line, there's a, a period with, that's bounded on either side by the first and the second comings of Jesus, and it says millennium, and then under that line it says co-regency with Jesus Christ in the intermediate state. Now, again, I'm having to compress a lot of information here, so I I hope I'm not losing you. When we read in Revelation 20 about the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year rule, I think what is being described there is what is happening right now in heaven, not on earth, but in what we call the intermediate state. So my guess is that probably every single one of you here tonight has had a family member who was a Christian or a close friend or someone you've known who trusted Jesus who has died. Where are they? They immediately enter into the presence of Christ in a disembodied state. Theologians call this the intermediate state. Why? Because it's in between, it's intermediate between life on this earth and the resurrection life in the age to come. And I believe every Christian who enters into the intermediate state shares with Jesus his rule and his reign over the nations of the earth. That's why I call it the co-regency with Jesus Christ in their intermediate state. Now, come back to the beginning of this millennial period. Notice it says Satan is bound. I believe the binding of Satan that's described in Revelation 20 happened at the first coming of Christ. Now, my premillennial friends usually throw a fit about this time. Or they throw bricks at me, one of the two, whichever is handier. And they say, wait a minute, Sam. How can you say that Satan is bound during this present church age? I mean, Revelation 20 says he's chained, he's bound, he's prohibited. And yet, we read in the New Testament that he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He tempts believers. He hails his fiery darts down upon us. He blinds the minds of the unbelievers. All sorts of things that Satan does. That's true. If we have time later we'll look at it. But read Revelation 20 very, very closely and ask yourself the question, with respect to what is Satan bound? And if you'll read verses one through three where it talks about him being bound and then you skip down to verse eight. Remember it says he's bound for a thousand years that he should no longer deceive the nations. Down in verse eight it says when the thousand years are over he is released and what does he do? he deceives the nations and gathers them together for the great battle against the people of God. So the point is this, John is very specific. He says there is one thing from which Satan which he cannot do because he's bound. He cannot deceive the nations into a premature Armageddon. He cannot gather the nations in this final assault against the people of God. That's what he's restricted from doing for the thousand year period, for the span of the millennium. John doesn't say that he can't do other things because we know he can. But with regard to that one specific desire in Satan's heart, he wants to provoke Armageddon prematurely. He wants to deceive the nations right now and bring them in this massive assault against the people of God, hoping to crush the kingdom of Christ. And he's bound and prohibited and kept from doing that. And the reason why I say that is because when he's released from his prison, that's the first and only thing he does. So that's why I say that Satan can be bound during this present age at the same time he's very active in so many other respects. Now, Let me mention one other thing, and this is the thing that I think you at Frontline have been studying in Mark 13. Notice down on the horizontal line, you see that one little vertical uh, line that says 70 A.D. Why did I mention that particular year? Because it was in 70 A.D. that the armies of Rome under the uh, leadership of Titus surrounded Jerusalem laid siege to it. And it was really from about 66 to 70, about a three and a half to four year period, that this great war took place, the result of which was that the entire city of Jerusalem was laid level. It was destroyed. The temple was burned to the ground. Josephus, who was an eyewitness to all of this, said that approximately 1,100,000 Jewish people were killed. It was If if you could ever read the descriptions that we have from eyewitnesses, it was the most horrific period imaginable on the face of the earth. I can't even begin to go into all the details. Of the 1,100,000 that were killed, about 100,000 survived and all of them were sold into slavery or crucified outside the city. Folks, I believe that that period from about 66 to 70 is what Jesus meant when he referred to the Great Tribulation. So when you read the Olivet Discourse, that's the discourse he gave on the Mount of Olives. It's in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. And Jesus talks about the Great Tribulation. I think he's talking about that particular period of time. So from about 33, when Jesus was raised, exalted to the right hand of the Father, until 70 AD, that's the period being described in the Olivet Discourse that culminates in the Great Tribulation. Now, I know that's got you reeling a little bit, but that's okay. We'll sum it up. Notice the present church age. As an amillennialist, I I, I largely agree with my premillennial friends that this present church age in which we live, leading up to the second coming, is one of the progressive parallel development of both good and evil. In other words, we're seen leading right up to the second coming of Jesus. The spread of evil, we're seeing it everywhere in our world today, but at the same time, there is a glorious movement of the Spirit of God among the people of God. It's, uh, it, it's, people say, how can that be? How can you have increased global oppression of the people of God simultaneous with massive revival, ingathering of souls, and great power? That's the way God works. It's, it's happening. We see it everywhere. And I think it's going to happen all the way up until the end when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now, you'll notice as we're moving to the right along that horizontal line, those arrows get a little bit bigger as we approach the second coming. That's simply my way of indicating that I think that as we approach the second coming of Jesus, persecution is going to intensify. I don't believe there's going to be a seven-year period called the tribulation in which all of those events transpire. But I do believe there's going to be tribulation and it will probably be great. It will intensify. I think we're seeing it right now. The persecution, we haven't tasted hardly anything in the United States. I mean it's come to Canada, it's come to virtually every other country in the world, but eventually it's going to come here as well. That persecution is going to intensify. That's going to lead up to the end of this present church age and the end of the heavenly millennium in which the saints are now reigning with Christ. So notice, at the end of the thousand years, the Satan who was bound, now he's loosed to do what? To gather the people of the earth in this final assault on the church of Jesus Christ. That will all be terminated by the second coming. Notice again, the arrow that comes down, that represents the descent of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. Notice the arrow that goes up to meet. that's the rapture of the church. I do believe in a rapture. But now notice... It's not the arrow that goes up again, but notice it continues to the earth. So the point is this. When Jesus returns at the end of this present age, he will descend in the clouds of heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4, we who are alive will be caught up to meet him in the air, will be glorified, we'll receive our resurrection bodies, and then we will continue with him in his descent to earth, at which time he will engage his enemies at the so-called Battle of Armageddon, And he will destroy them. Now, again, forgive my pathetic artistic talents, but isn't that a beautiful chair? (laughs) (laughs) That's supposed to represent the throne of God. It's the great white throne judgment. You say, that's not a great throne, that's a pathetic looking backwards H or whatever it is, but it's supposed to represent at that time when Christ returns. You beat about Revelation 20, John says, I saw a great white throne. And it's then that the peoples of the earth will be judged. The sheep will be separated from the goats. The judgment seat of Christ will take place. And that will lead into the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. So the point of this scheme, again, is to indicate that this present church age in which we live is a time that is characterized by small-t tribulation. You read about that all through the New Testament. We we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. That was happening in the first century. It's happening now. It will intensify and it will increase. But I don't think it's going to lead to a specific period of time called the Great Tribulation. I believe that's what Jesus had in mind when he described what was going to befall Jerusalem back in the first century. And of course, on this view, as you can very clearly see, The rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ happen, in essence, simultaneously. They are two sides of one event. Christ descends, translates us to meet him, continues his descent in the second coming to consummate his kingdom purposes. Now, let me mention one other quick view. I've got eight minutes left, and then we're going to stop and, uh, I guess, have questions. There's another view that is has been more popular in, in recent years, and honestly, throughout most of, um, really from the time of the Protestant Reformation up until the middle of the 19th century, was the dominant view among Christians. It's called post-millennialism. Again, hear the word, post. So they believe that the second coming of Christ comes after the millennium. Well, in that sense, I'm a post-millennialist. All ah-mills are post-mills. But the distinct difference is this. Postmillennialists come in basically two varieties. It's what I call salvific postmillennialism. And what that means is simply this. These people believe that as we come closer and closer to the second coming, eventually the entire earth is going to be Christianized. The vast majority of people on the face of the earth will turn to faith in Jesus. By the way, just so you know, I hope they're right. I don't think they are, but... Who's going to object to that? So they believe that actually times will not grow worse as we come close to the second coming, but conditions will greatly improve because the majority of the world will come to faith in Jesus. It's not going to be through some evolutionary progress of human development. They believe it's going to be because of the work of the Holy Spirit through the church preaching the gospel. I have many post-millennial friends. I tell them all the time, oh, I pray that you're right, but I think you're wrong. Then there's another version of postmillennialism, for lack of a better way of calling it, we could call it cultural or societal postmillennialism. They also agree that the majority of the world will come to Jesus, but they believe that these Christians are going to transform society before the coming of Christ. In fact, government and all political expressions, education, athletics, business, entertainment, um, universities, everything will eventually be. Christianized. The influence of the church on all of these structures and expressions in society will be transformed according to biblical principles. So, basically, the difference between the pr- post mill and the amill view is that they're far more optimistic than we are. So, I like to call myself a pessimistic post millennialist, <laughs> and I call them optimistic amillennialists. But I hope you can see the distinction there. I, as I said, I hope they're right. I just don't see it, folks. I I just don't see the biblical evidence for this transformation in society uh, that leads to the Christianizing of the world. Now, don't think for a moment that that means that we shouldn't do our very best in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the, the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ into every area of life. We ought to seek the transformation of our educational institutions in our political parties, in our governmental systems, in our economic systems, in the business world, entertainment and athletics. Of course we should. And we'll see certain degrees of success there. But the post-millennials believes we're going to win. Uh, and it will come before the second coming of Jesus. Now, I think probably that's probably the best place for us to stop. Uh, so, Josh, you all want to come on up. Let me just kind of wrap this up real quickly by trying to remind us once again, what unites the dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialist and the mid-tribulationist, and the post-tribulationist, and pre-mills, all-mills, and post-mills, what unites us all is our confident belief that Jesus Christ is coming back. That has to be the focus of our efforts, and of our preaching, and of all of our prayers, I'm sure that we all disagree on these other points. I'm sure most of you disagree with the view that I've just defended. That's okay, as long as together as brothers and sisters in Christ, our sight is set on the heavens waiting the return of Jesus. When that will happen, I don't know. How close we are to that occurrence, I don't know. All the other events people are asking is the the whole issue with Russia invading Ukraine somehow a prelude to that? I don't know. I don't know that anybody else can know. I, I only know what the word says, and I don't see the word speaking to those particular questions. I hope that we are right around the corner from the return of our Lord and Savior. I honestly, if you press me, I'd have to say I I have a hard time believing we can survive much longer. I don't know that that at least w- the Western world and the you know the Third World may even be worse shape. I just. I see the decay and the, and the dissolution of our, the, the moral fabric of our country and of our long-standing institutions and traditions. Uh, I hope things can be turned around. I, I have confidence in the power of the gospel. But I'm, I'm seeing, as I pointed out in that little scheme, those little arrows seem to be getting bigger and bigger, pointing to an ever-increasing uh, oppression of the people of God. In fact, this gets us far too deep into the book of Revelation. I think it's going to get so bad that just before the coming of Christ, it's going to appear as if the church goes under. I see that in Revelation 11 and the, and the killing of the two witnesses, which I think, by the way, are, are a reference to the whole church and its prophetic witness to the people of the earth. I think, it's, I think our voice is going to be silenced. It's going to appear as if we've been crushed. And yet, if you read Revelation 11, God breathed into them the breath of life and they rose up. And I think there will be a massive uprising of the church in victory In conjunction with the second coming of Jesus. All right. So good. Well, there you go.
1: Yes. Hey, Andrew Burkhart, come on. Andrew walked in tonight and said,
0: hey, I think you're doing something with us. And he said,
2: said, I don't think I am.
1: so good. Hey, so a couple of things before we dive into these questions. Uh, sorry about that, Mike. That's, that's Charlie Hall. He sabotaged you. Hey, so uh, let, me, let me do just a couple of things that I think are pastorally helpful. Let me encourage you to note, not just from what Sam taught, but from his tone, the level of charity to different views that you experienced. So I think that's something for you to take away in terms of application is that we live in a moment that's so charged with impugning the motives of your opponents that we have a hard time in engaging in civil discourse. And one of the things that you just saw model for you is that Christian maturity leads to peaceful presence, even as we talk about difficult things. And that we can offer each other, we can extend to one another grace and mercy And we can do so in a way that also engages rigorous debate and opening our Bibles and talking about hard things. The second thing I want you to know is that far from coming away from a conversation like this, feeling defeated or feeling like you're not smart enough, what you should recognize is that Sam's been wrestling with these things for decades and it was fascinating to even hear him talk about the process of writing this book, which I'd love for you to get into at some point, that there were, um, there were manuscripts completed with this book, and Sam continued to wait and process and wrestle and think it through. And, and that should invite you into the realization that studying scripture and arriving at truth is a lifelong process. I got to spend time this morning at OBU's chapel in Shawnee, and it was so fun to just see a group of over a thousand students, mostly 18 to 22 years old, and to think about the beginnings of the journey of discipleship. And then today to get to be with my friend Sam, who's been walking with Jesus for decades and he's about to go through a transition with the church that he's led for many years. And it's just a great reminder that we need to have, as Eugene Peterson put it, long obedience in the same direction. We need to pursue lifelong humility and teachability and learning. So tonight, don't be frustrated and don't be cruel to yourself. Extend yourself some grace, but don't extend yourself cheap, greasy grace. Like, open your Bibles. Open your Bibles. Engage the word of God. Wrestle and pray and ask that God would teach you. Amen? Amen. 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 So, um, we're going to open it up for some q and I'm sure that this didn't create any questions right. whatsoever.
2: Yeah, it's actually uh, quite overwhelming. I've got... Um, this burner number on Google Voice and it just keeps populating with new questions. So uh, if I don't get to your question, I'm so sorry. We're gonna try to get through as many as possible. Tried to make sense of the order of these, but we're just gonna do our best.
1: And, and just to note, like, I'm just up here for eye candy. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm like, this would be like, like I don't want the ball if I'm playing with Michael Jordan. I don't want the ball. I'm. I'm tired, son. I spent three weeks with you in Mark chapter 13. I want Dr. Storm to do the heavy lifting. So if there's, if there's funny questions, if there's questions about missiology and engaging Oklahoma City, I might take some of those. But most of it, I'm going to shut up and listen to my friend talk.
2: If you're eye candy, what's Andrew? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no comment.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Man... So much fun! One of the funnest questions that came in was, um, "Do we just get wisdom by simply watching you in your sweater
0: vest?" <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's we're praying of for osmosis. What can I say? You know? Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this what the high priest wore? You know, That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> had a right. few jewels on it instead, but yeah. Those
1: are those are evangelical vestments. Yeah. <laughs>
2: This is a really great question. I think there's something Josh hit on just there a moment ago Um, in reference to the charity we can have between one another, uh, maybe on differing views. But the question reads like this. For the uninitiated, this is all really confusing. Does it really matter uh, what position you hold, given that the most important thing that we hold is that Christ is returning? Great question. Should we really think about this deeply at all? Josh
0: has got a great answer to that, too. (laughs) He probably does. Yeah, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, because we need to understand the Bible. God has given us his word to enlighten our minds and to provide us encouragement and hope. Yes. Um, I think God is seen as incredibly glorious and powerful when we understand his purposes in redemptive history, starting in Genesis 1, going all the way to the end of the book of Revelation to see the way he has worked. Um, So there's incredible encouragement. There's hope there. And then also, um, and again, I I, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but seriously, uh, what you believe about some of these issues is going to govern your life. Yes. Um, Are you going to circle the wagons and bail out and just wait for the rapture and, Lord, come get me out of this mess before it touches my life and my family? Or are you going to go out in confidence and hope and the power of the Holy Spirit to seek to make known the good news and to have an influence in culture and society to the extent that God wills to accomplish? Um, I guess maybe the reason why I do feel it's important is uh, is. Again, this goes back to the way I was raised in my own tr- journey in this respect. I watched how people um, were, obs- and I'm not saying any of this is true of any of you, but if it is, take it to heart, who were obsessed with escape. He mm-hmm. says, God, get me out of here. And they, they withdraw, they hunker down. Like I said, they circle the wagons and wait for the rapture. Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with waiting for the rapture. I'm waiting for the rapture. But... What you understand to be transpiring um, uh, is going to affect how you live, the decisions you make, how you invest your money and your time. Um, And there are all sorts of other practical implications. You guys weigh in on this as well. Um, It's interesting, and we don't need to go into this, but it even affects how you vote. I mean, uh, if the candidate represents your particular eschatological view, I mean, the whole issue of the support of Israel governs how many people vote more than anything else. And I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with that. I support Israel. Uh, I'm gonna probably vote for the candidate who does. Um, But understanding the end time scenarios is going to affect how you live, your expectations, your hopes, your fears. Um, So you guys wanna weigh in on that as well? Do
1: you have anything? Yeah, I I, I just mentioned, I mentioned when we were diving into Mark chapter 13. From my perspective, I think there's two mistakes that we see really often. I think there's a way in which some people become so confident of their eschatological view and so like, so overly dogmatic about it that it's all they want to talk about and they wear it on their sleeve and you can't really talk to them about anything else. And I think that there are places in scripture that are more clear and places that are less clear, clear and we try to interpret the parts that are a little less clear In light of the parts that are a little more clear. And I think this is one of those places where like an an obsession is probably not the place to land. Nor do I think we should err on the side of like the pan-millennial view. It will all pan out in the end. Because that's a cop-out. Like uh, the prophets talked about this. The apostles talked about this. Our Lord and Savior talked about this. It was. It's included by the Holy Spirit in our sacred canon. So we do need to do the work, and it matters. And it's going to affect how you pray. It's going to affect your grid for suffering. It's going to affect um, the kind of resiliency that the people of God show in the world. And so I do think it matters.
0: Yeah, and, and just another thing. Um, I remember something that John Piper said. He was asked what is what is one of the primary goals of all his preaching and ministry. And he says, I want to prepare my people to suffer well. Yes. And if you're not doing that, folks, if you're not preparing your souls and strengthened in Christ to be able to, to not lose your faith and to not deconstruct when everything around you is collapsing, if you're not preparing yourself for that, it's going to be a rude awakening. Because I said, it's I don't think it's going to get any better in our world. So um, understanding God's purposes in the earth um, does awaken us to the fact that we need to learn how to suffer well. We need to be prepared. For what is coming. yeah,
1: and, and even if there is a cycle of renewal where it gets better for a little while, mm-hmm. and you live through that, and Jesus doesn't return, you still have to die.
0: That's right.
1: You still have to die. I mean, like, how much of the Christian Some life... Some of us sooner
0: than later, yeah. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> so much of the Christian life is preparing for the dark day. Yeah. And so that's that's why we need to open our Bibles, and, and we need each other. And
0: again... I just think of all those statements in the new testament about fixing our eyes on the return of christ you know philippians three twenty and 21 um, our citizenship is in heaven from which we are waiting for a savior who will you know glorify our bodies to be made like unto his own first john 3 the one who sets his hope on this seeing christ purifies himself even as he is pure uh, these are so important for us
3: Yeah, even behind the question, I I had a similar feeling, I think, several years ago before I met you. It's like, it's just so confusing. There's so, you okay?
1: So sorry. all right? So sorry.
3: There's just so many views out there, and, and it felt overwhelming to me to even know where to start. And that's for some of my carelessness in the past. It was really stemming from like, how do you even understand this? And the thing that's so helpful to remember is there are certain things in the Bible that like my three little kids can grasp real easily. Even my four-year-old boy, he, he can really understand certain things. But then like the book of Revelation, it's okay to acknowledge that some sections of scripture are harder to interpret and to understand. And here's a book that is written in a very different type of genre and literature that we're not even really familiar with very much as a culture today. It was written a long time ago in a different setting. And so really wrestling and grappling with that and knowing that there's guys like Dr. Storms and other people out there that have done a lot of work, I think helps some of that carelessness out of fear of, oh, it's just so hard. I'll never be able to understand it. Well, actually, you probably can. If you, you know, through years and through study, there's some beautiful stuff that as you learn really will affect the way that you live.
1: Hey, can I throw out a question to you? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting. So I'd love for you to talk just a little bit about as historically Orthodox people in the evangelical tradition of wanting to be faithful to God's word. Can you just talk a little bit about relationship with tradition? So like scripture first, but then a relationship with tradition and surveying the history of the church. And I thought that was interesting even as you brought up various views and when they came in in the timeline of the church, like how much does that matter? How do you see that? How does that affect the way that you wrestle with things like this?
0: Yeah. uh, That's a delicate question. Tradition is important. It's just not decisive. Yeah. And there's a distinction there. It's the difference between the theologians use these fancy words. They say it's ministerial. It's not magisterial. In other words, we look to the history of the church, the last 2,000 years, and it matters what Irenaeus said in the second century and what Augustine said in the fourth and fifth and and what um, Aquinas said in the 14th and 13th and 14th and what Luther and Calvin said and what the Protestant ref- uh, Puritan said. And all we want to, we are, a, I mean, that thing we cited at the beginning of the service, the Apostles' Creed, um, you know, that goes back, you know, 1,600, 1,700 years. And so it's important that we pay heed. I, I'm re- me, I'll just tell you this, I'm really nervous, and you should be too. When somebody comes to you and they just returned from a conference or they've just read a book and they say, hey, I heard something that I don't think anybody in the history of the church has ever seen before. <laughs> There's a good reason why they've never <laughs> seen it before. It's because it's probably 99% wrong. Yes. Um, be nervous about novelty, folks. Yeah. Be n- there are thousands upon thousands if not millions of Christians who are incredibly smarter than you and me who have never come up with these ideas that so many people come up with today. And I, I just have, I find it hard to believe that we can, we're suddenly the ones with great insight and we can believe things and see things that the church throughout its history never has. So I wanna pay attention to what they said. I'm not gonna believe what I do because of what Augustine said or because of what Luther said, but if they have studied scripture and know it better than I do, which all of them did, I'm going to listen to what they have to say. They're going to minister to me. They're not going to exert a magisterial or decisive influence where I say, well, I, I'm a Lutheran today, therefore i got to believe what Luther says. Or I'm a Presbyterian, so i got to believe what Calvin said. Or I'm a, a, a Methodist, so i got to believe what Wesley said. Listen to the people down through history, but realize they were all on a journey just like us. Um, so again, we, we have to be beholden to one thing and one thing only, and that's the Word of God. And... Be helped by those who've gone before and listen to them and analyze their views and compare them with scripture. Um, so there, there's, I mean, my, the greatest influence on my life theologically was Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758, Puritan pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist. I think he was wrong, but boy, I learned, a, I still learned a lot from him. Yeah, such a good
1: word.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
2: we're definitely going to get through all the questions. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, something about Israel a moment ago. and Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, here, <laughs> we, we, we got to go there. It's really important because, you know, it, whether it comes to American evangelical political conversation or e- theological conversation, what do we do with Israel? Right? Like, what, what do we do with Israel? I read, I read something in, in your book where even in the first chapter you talked about Jesus fulfills Israel. Right? Um, Jesus is the true Israel. Um, and yet there's a question that comes in that says, does the fact that the nation of Israel has been preserved for thousands of years, while so many nations have ceased to make you think that God, uh, while was, well, many nations have ceased to, to, to exist, does it make you think that God still has a plan for Israel and what is that plan?
0: Yes, I think his plan is to save the elect from within ethnic Israel. That's what Paul said in Romans 11. He said, has God rejected his people whom he foreknew? God forbid. Paul says, I'm a Jew. You know, He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a of Benjamin, uh, circumcised the eighth day. Paul says, I'm living proof that God has not abandoned his purpose for, the, for ethnic Jews. And then throughout Romans 11, he talks about how God is even in his day and throughout all church history saving people uh, who are Jewish, bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. My belief is that when he does save a Jewish man or woman, they are incorporated into the body of Christ. They become members of the church together with believing Gentiles. They are grafted back into the one olive tree where unnatural branches, that's us, have been grafted in because of faith in Jesus. So is there some uh, greater eschatological purpose in the fact, I'm surprised, I'm sure this was part of the question, that the nation was reestablished in 1948. Honestly, folks, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know, but I mean, how, how would we know that? I, I think that, in, that there's a very strong likelihood that what happened in 48 with Israel's presence now back in the land may be a prelude to the work that God intends to do among Jewish people in bringing them to faith in Christ. It may be a, a step in that direction. I support Israel's right to exist as a nation on political, historical, and gr- uh, grounds of international justice. I don't do it because I think they have a claim to the Abrahamic Covenant, because I think we have a claim to the Abrahamic Covenant. I think the, I think the promised land is the whole darn earth, yes. and ultimately the new earth that will, be, uh, that will come when Jesus returns. And we all share in the inheritance of that. So I believe, he's, I, mean, I know I'm going way off board here, but you open the door. Um, (laughs) People ask, does amillennialism just kind of vaporize all the Old Testament promise? What about the land promise? I believe the promise of the land is literal. I believe it was unconditional. I believe it will be fulfilled in the new earth, not anything in this unredeemed present earth. It's interesting, when you read Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob They looked upon the earth into which God, the land into which God took them as if they were in a foreign country. Why? Because they were looking for a city that has foundations. I think they were looking for the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. So yes, you will not spend eternity flying around on clouds. Now if you want to, I guess you probably could. We're going to live in eternity on earth, on soil, with grass beneath our feet. Uh, It's the new earth delivered of the corruption of the fall. So, yes, I believe the land promises will be fulfilled literally, but in the new earth.
2: Not only will we get those promises, but the whole, the whole cosmos with it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you mentioned this when you're going through the millennial positions, but just to restate this for, for those that are new to the conversation, what does the term millennium mean in the context of amillennialism? What kind of period of time is it describing? Is it a figurative thousand years? Some of this will lead into a conversation around Revelation 20. Sure. But just get into the figurative or literal thousand years. Right.
0: Well, the first thing you, you need to be aware of, and I think you'll, most of you know this virtually every number in the book of Revelation is symbolic. Whether it's three, four, five, six, seven, 10, 12, uh, 144,000, 1,000, almost all of them are symbolic of something. Um, And that's a great study to pursue. It's interesting when you look at the the number 1,000, because it says in Revelation 20, and they shall reign for 1,000 years, and then when the 1,000 years are up. I do not believe that that means you can mark the beginning day of the 1,000 years on a calendar, and then 1,000 years later, the last day when it terminates. Every place in the rest of the Bible where the number 1,000 appears, it's always figurative, symbolic. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. Well, so the cow on the thousand and first hill doesn't belong to God? I mean, um, everywhere, whether, whether it's a temporal context or a figurative context, 1,000 always means it's is figurative for the perfect period of time. So obviously on my scheme, I believe that the millennium has now been in existence for what? Well, if Jesus exalted, what, 33 A.D., and here we are in 2022, you added up almost 2,000 years, 1,990 some odd years. So it's not a literal 1,000, but it is the millennial reign. It is, the millennial reign is literal. It's happening right now. Um, but I don't think it is limited by 1,000 years that you can count off on a calendar. And again, I would just say, look up every place where the number 1,000 is in, in the Old New Testament. You'll find it's always figurative never refers to a specific, literal 1,000-year period. Can you kind of
2: pivot from that question and talk about the different approaches? Because one of the things that dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialism would say is we take the Bible literally. And so, therefore, we're the most, some would say, serious about the Bible because we take it in its literalness, right? I look at you, your position on millennialism. You talk about all this figurative stuff. How, is, how can I take what you're saying as more serious because you're thinking in terms of figures and metaphors, whereas
0: literalness? Can you just divide that for us for a minute? Yeah, that's a, that's a deep topic of biblical hermeneutics, but we've got to define the word literal. What do you mean by that? When Jesus says, I am the door, he's got hinges and a knob, and just says, you know, you're the salt of the earth. Well, that's a metaphor, uh, Jesus is a good shepherd. Well, he, he's not literally a shepherd in the sense he has sheep and a, and a rod. So, again, what does literal mean? Literal means whatever the author intended. Um, literal means real, doesn't necessarily mean physical, tangible. So, we've misunderstood what the word literal means. I believe every figure of speech in the Bible is describing a literal, real truth. Yes. It's just doing it in symbolic terms or metaphorical terms. Um, there are thousands of metaphors and similes and figures of speech all through the Old and the New Testament. I believe, you know, someone, say, so someone, someone says, I take the Bible literally. Well, what, you know, I, you read the book of Revelation. Okay, let's go to Revelation 20. You say, I'm premillennial because I take the Bible literally. Oh, really? So you believe Satan is a literal dragon and that an angel took a literal chain with multiple links in it and bound him and locked him away in an abyss? Did he close the door on the abyss? Was it one that didn't have walls? Because remember, he's a spiritual being. Um, every, it's virtually everything there is figurative, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Yes. You see, the idea is, is, oh, literal means true, figurative or symbolic means false. no. It's truth expressed through symbolism, truth expressed through figurative language, metaphorical language. Um, If you you would stop and analyze your own speech in a conversation with somebody, you'd be shocked at how many times you use figurative language. Uh, It it happens all the time. I mean, I'm hungry. You want to go to some greasy spoon down around the corner? Well, you know what greasy spoon means. It's not literally a spoon that has grease on it. We, We always use this language. So again. Um, Do I believe the Bible should be interpreted literally? Well, let's define the term. If you mean, do we take it as true, yes, on the basis of what? The intent of the author. What did he intend by it? And and by the way, ultimately, and I was going to say this, but I didn't have time. I'll say it now. You, You have to keep in mind, the most fundamental interpretive principle is the priority of the New Testament. The New Testament is the lexicon of the Old. What the old ultimately means is determined by how it is interpreted in the new. And that is critically important. But so again, you throw this word literal around, it doesn't help. Um, just throw the word true out there. Do we believe everything in the Bible is true? Yes, absolutely. No, man, that's great.
2: <laughs> A lot what of questions said. coming in about the antichrist. Hmm? Um Antichrist. What up, Charlie? Again, and again. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> hey, we go way back. Back in those days, I called him Chuck. So there you go, and he let me. <laughs> Antichrist, singular, plural. Yeah. Uh, will we know who he is? Oh. What's going on with this? Um, I have a podcast. This is a self-promoting advertisement here. <laughs> at samstorms.org, and uh, I just concluded, I think I did four podcasts on, entitled The Beast, the False Prophet, and the Number of the Beast, or The Antichrist, False Prophet, and Number of the Beast. Um, there's a lot of controversy swirling around that issue, so let me back up in biblical history. Um, the first embodiment of what we might call Antichrist, or what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation, was Antiochus Epiphanes, in the middle of the second century B.C., if you don't know anything about Antiochus, he was a Syrian king who invaded uh, Israel. He desecrated the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. I mean, how horrible can it be? Uh, martyred in, in numbers and numbers of, uh, of Jewish followers of God. Um, G- he is called by Daniel the abomination of desolation. There was a second personal embodiment of that. In Titus, the Roman general, I think Jesus, when he talks about the abomination of desolation, he's talking about Titus and what he would do uh, in desecrating the temple. I mean, the things he did in the temple, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and and the temple itself was horrific. So that gives me a little bit of an inclination to think that maybe there's going to be one more final personal embodiment of the abomination of desolation that we call Antichrist. Now, this is a complex issue. Several things to keep in mind. Number one, the book of Revelation never once uses the word antichrist. It's not there. The only place in the Bible where the word antichrist is found is in 1 John and 2 John, in in the shorter epistles of John. And there, interestingly enough, John says that if you deny that Jesus is God come in the flesh, you're antichrist. He said there are many antichrists. Anybody who denies the incarnation of God the Son, antichrist. Now, some people have said, well, that's the only Antichrist that will ever appear. It's anybody who denies the deity of the Lord Jesus. Um, we come to Revelation and we read about the beast, right? Revelation 13, Revelation 17. Is the beast the Antichrist? Um, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I believe the beast in Revelation is primarily a corporate symbol of the collective opposition to the kingdom of Christ energized by Satan. Here's why I believe that. When you read Revelation 13, you read the description of this beast that comes out of the sea, and all the features, it's a composite portrayal of the anti-Christian kingdoms that Daniel talked about. Remember he talked about Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, and each of them showed the characteristics of these animals? All four of those are expressed in the beast of Revelation 13. I think the beast is primarily Anything, anyone, any organization, any belief, any movement down through history that opposes Jesus Christ and seeks to crush the kingdom of God. Um, I think the beast was um, the Arian movement in the 4th century that denied the deity of Christ. The beast was the Roman persecution of Christians. Um, the beast was a late medieval Catholicism with all its superstitions. The beast was... I'm going to offend some of you scientists. The beast was evolutionary Darwinism that denies the creative work of God. The beast uh, is ISIS. The beast is the pro-abortion movement. The, the beast is was the book, The Myth of God Incarnate. I had to read it in seminary. You hear the title? The Myth of God Incarnate. They denied that God came in human flesh in the person of Jesus. That's an expression of the beast. Any thought, any movement, any organization, any political uh, party, anybody that stands opposed to the principles of the kingdom of God is a manifestation of the beast. And that beast has been operative throughout this entire present age. Now, having said that, is it possible that there will be a final, individual, personal embodiment of the beast in what we call the antichrist? I'm certainly open to that possibility. I'm kind of wavering. The the one text that's leading me to say yes is 2 Thessalonians 2 where he talks about the man of lawlessness. I don't know how to get around that, although that chapter makes no sense to me. I have n- don't ask me any questions about 2 Thessalonians 2. I do not understand what Paul's saying there. I have a q and ch- done. I have a whole yeah. chapter on it in my book, Kingdom Come, and at the end I say, I agree with Augustine. I have no idea what Paul is saying. That's what Augustine said. <laughs> I'm in good company. So, will there emerge one final personal embodiment who will in some sense orchestrate this global collective opposition to the kingdom of Jesus? Very possibly so, probably so, but even if it doesn't, the beast is still very much a real thing. It's a it, it's, you read about it in Revelation 13:17, as you all can do on your own. Um, so, will there be an individual Antichrist? I'm not opposed to that idea. I'm still waiting to, to really be thoroughly persuaded by it. I don't think Revelation teaches that truth. Um, and by the way. See, what's the false prophet? I think the false prophet is, again, a collective symbol of all the false teaching that has plagued the church. Do you know that the majority of Paul's letters were written to counteract heresy and false teaching? Um, all through church history, I could we could talk about heresies. We've got them all over the place today. Those are manifestations of the false prophet, false teaching. Um, so, again... Will there be an individual who's called the false prophet? I I don't think so. I think we've got gazillions of false prophets. They're everywhere. They're here in Oklahoma City. They're in our pulpits, for heaven's sake, Uh, which is tragic. So I know that kind of I'm kind of skirting around the issue. Yeah, probably there will be one final individual embodiment of the principle of the beast called antichrist. I'm not going to die on that hill. I'm not going to dogmatically affirm it, but I'm not going to dogmatically deny it either.
2: Got a few questions left. We can kind of get to tonight. Um, you referenced your podcast. We should we should go attend there. But six six six, the mark of the beast. Uh, you alluded <laughs> to it. But if you're going to talk antichrist, let's go ahead and go there. Yeah, especially in I our knew current, you were going there. In our current cultural moment, political moment, I mean, yeah. we're just we're we're surrounded by a host of thoughts about this. Yeah, and we've got to know what to do with it.
0: Here's the thing to remember. Virtually everything that you read about the book of Revelation in terms of the beast and all of the anti-Christian activity there is a counterfeit of the real. Um, it's interesting. There is the unholy trinity. There's Satan. There's the beast and the false prophet, counterparts to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, you read about the beast, and everything he does mimics and rips off what is true of Jesus, death and resurrection. Um, so when you, when you come across this reference to the mark of the beast, we first have to understand what was, what was that word, how was that word used in the ancient world? It was used in a variety of different ways. It actually referred in many uh, cultures in, in that day and time to a tattoo. You want to show yours? <laughs> You've got the mark of the beast, Josh. <laughs> no, no. no. I take. knew this would be so helpful. Yeah. <laughs> well, Andrew's got one too, so <laughs> I'm too old. But uh, I told somebody one time, by the way, I was preaching through Hebrews 7, where it says that uh, Jesus always lives to make intercession for those to the uttermost. And I was going to have always an uttermost tattooed on my forearms if I ever got one. So hadn't happened yet. But, I'll pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> will you hold my hand while I, I, I scream in pain? I will. <laughs> Um, I actually had a church member bring me fake tattoos that said that, and then they, you, know, you put them, temporary ones. Um, it was oftentimes a mark of loyalty. Um, tribes in the ancient world were differentiated um, by, by a, a mark of some sort. Now, do I believe that the mark of the beast is a literal mark on the body? No, I don't, and here's why. In Revelation 7 and 14, you read about the seal... That is put upon the foreheads of God's people. The seal is put on your forehead. Uh, The number or the name of your God is emblazoned on your forehead. So are all Christians going to have a literal tattoo that marks them off as the people of God? No, it's symbolic of the fact that He owns us and our minds are devoted and committed to Him. It's It's a sign of allegiance, it's a sign of loyalty. And so the mark of the beast is simply John's way of saying that there are those who are going to be aligned with the beast. Um, Again, I think the mark of the beast is a demonic parody or ripoff of the seal of God on the foreheads of God's people. So if you don't believe one is a literal mark, I don't think you should believe the other one. So no, I don't believe it's a computer chip. I don't believe it's 666 written on your body. Um, I, I think it's simply a way of referring to those who have given their lives over to the Anti-Christian forces t- to Satan, in effect, who are serving his purposes, um, and that's the point of the idea of the mark of the beast. So, Big question. oh, it's a huge question. yeah. yeah. If you, I, I go into more detail on this on the on those four podcasts. So, want to listen? Can to
2: you them. touch briefly on the hundred and forty-four thousand? Sure. Revelation: Who they are? What to think about them?
0: Yeah. Again, think about the numbers. Twelve times a thousand times twelve—it's obviously very symbolic of the complete and perfect body of people. I—it's interesting when you re- look at the hundred forty-four thousand, the list of the tribes. Um, there are there's there's no example of the listing of tribes in the Old Testament that corresponds to Revelation seven. There are differences. Um, I think the hundred forty-four thousand are a reference to all the people of God, those who have been redeemed. Those who have been sealed by the Spirit of God and are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the 144,000 are the same as the innumerable multitude later in the chapter. It's looking at the people of God on the earth, undergoing persecution and tribulation, and the people of God in heaven surrounding the throne. And so, again, I think it's a symbolic reference to the totality of God's people. I don't think it's specifically referring to just Jewish believers. I think it's all believers, both Jewish and Gentile. Again, I, I, I go into great detail on that in my book. So if you yeah. want. To, and in fact, by the way, if you don't want to get the book, if you go to my <laughs> website, virtually everything in my book is there under the, if you go to resources and uh, theological topics, you'll see eschatology. And I've got articles on the 144,000, Mark of the Beast, everything is right there. Mm-hmm. It's all free of charge. Don't have to yeah. pay a penny. Um,
2: maybe one more question kind of in the, the details of things, then we'll kind of pull back and then try to draw, draw things to a close tonight. Um, Christian nationalism, eschatology. We talked a moment ago about Israel and how so much of the American evangelical political conversation is caught up in some of this, and and those views have been co-opted. The question is, how does uh, or does the Gog and Magog invasion play into the second coming? Is the United States mentioned or referred to at all in Revelation? Is the young lion a reference to... The US.
0: And that's about ten questions. You went all over the place there. Start well, with Christian I just, nationalism, I just to give and you some got the Gog to just and Magog. Talk about. <laughs> okay. Um, if I haven't offended you yet, I'm getting ready to.
2: <laughs> all right.
0: You can't be a pastor without lovingly, humbly offending your people, right? You've never offended anybody. Never. Oh, okay. Folks, I just want you to hear me what I'm saying here. want to say this in a gentle way. God is not in covenant with the United States of America. God is in covenant with the church of Jesus Christ. There have only been two nations on the face of the earth with whom God entered into covenant. Israel in the Old Testament and the church of Jesus Christ in the New. God doesn't make covenants with nations. He makes covenants with Christians. That's why Peter cites the book of Exodus and says that you, the church, are a holy nation, a people set apart for God's own purposes and possession. Now, I am not denying, don't get me wrong, I'm not denying that the early settlers, pilgrims, Puritans, and the founding fathers, I'm not denying for a moment that they made a covenant with God. They did. The documents are there. I've read most of them. In fact, I gave a talk on this in Dallas at a conference just three weeks ago, so it's fresh on my mind. Yes, they, they pledged themselves. They said, we're going to build this country on the basis of biblical principles, um, and, and you can read that in all of the, the, the early settlers and the founders. But that doesn't mean that God entered into covenant with them. How would you know that anyway? How, how, how would you know if God, had, had, again, I, I read oftentimes that the, that the principles of the covenant that God made with Israel, the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy 28, those apply to the United States. No, they don't. Um, God is in covenant with the church. And again, this is not in any way to suggest that you shouldn't love this country and be patriotic. I'm as patriotic as they come. And I'm telling you, though, though I'm 71 years old, if our country were invaded, I'd take up arms and defend it. I don't know if some of you pacifists are upset by that, but that's, I'm just simply saying I love this country, I believe it is unique. I do believe in American exceptionalism. I think God has blessed us, and we have served the nations of the earth with financial aid and ministry and sending missionaries. I love the U.S. I don't believe the U.S. is in covenant with God. I think the church is. So I know that really eats away at some of you, and I'm sorry about that. But be careful um, that you, you somehow think that God loves the U.S.A. more than he does Canada or Indonesia or South Africa. Um, yep. that's just not true um, God loves the people of God who are united in local churches now what else did you ask <laughs> oh Gog and Magog Yeah. no Gog and Magog are not a reference to Russia and I actually brought the, the statement of that if any of you had asked it I'm just going to pull it out make the microphone go crazy I um, There has been a a theory among the pre-tribulational dispensationalists that um, the reference in Ezekiel to Gog and the prince of Rosh, that this is the leader of modern-day Russia, and it refers to Meshech, and that's a reference to Moscow, that's baseless, people. Those are just words that sound alike. People have also said that Tubal is said to be the province of Tobolsk, all these Russian cities. Um, There is an incredible uh, scholar named Edwin Yamauchi, who's probably regarded as the the most uh, distinguished Christian linguist. He probably reads and speaks 20 different languages. And he's written an entire book called Foes from the Northern Frontier, Invading Hordes from the Russian Steppes. And he points out that Rosh simply means chief or head. And the modern word Russia, he said, is desi- desi- derived from the word Rus, R-U-S, which was a Scandinavian word that was introduced into Ukraine in the Middle Ages. Meshech and Tubal are attested in cuneiform text as Mushku and Tabal areas in central and eastern Turkey. So the point is, um, Rosh, Meshek, Tubal, these are not references to Russian cities. Gog and Magog, I think, is a reference to any and all nations of the world that oppose Jesus Christ. When it talks about the invasion of Gog and Magog, it's talking about every nation, not just Russia. It's talking about every anti-Christian kingdom, military organization, political movement that stands opposed to the kingdom of Christ.
1: Well said. No, man, that's great. Excellent. Timely, helpful, and true
2: here. I I, I laugh even saying real quickly here. Um, the rapture. Yeah. Real quickly.
0: I'm for it. I'm for it.
2: (laughs) Um, discuss a bit of what's going on there. Pre-tribulationism. I know there there are different views where it's happening in different spots. Some views, it's not, it's not there at all.
0: I, the rapture is clear. First, first Thessalonians four. Um, those of us who are alive and who remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. By the way, it's interesting. Um, in First Thessalonians 4, when it says we will be caught up to meet him in the air, and you heard me say that we will then constitute, as it were, his his retinue, his, his triumphant parade that descends to defeat his enemies, that Greek word translated meet is used in the book of Acts and also in extra-biblical literature to refer to an ancient practice, when a city would hear of a visiting dignitary, a prince, a king, a ruler, whatever, coming to their city, a delegation from the city would go out to the outskirts of the city to meet him and then to escort him back into the city. That's what will happen at the rapture. We will be caught up to meet Christ in the air and then we'll escort him back to the earth as he accomplishes his final defeat of all of his enemies. So First um, Corinthians 15 also talks about the rapture. We'll be change in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, Perishable will put on imperishable. We will be changed. Uh, I think that's a reference to the rapture. So now there's so many other questions you're probably saying, what about those people that have died and are with Christ and won't be alive on the earth when he comes back? Remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4. They will be raised first. In other words, they will come with Christ in their disembodied state. Their resurrection bodies will be granted to them. They will be glorified then we who are alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. We will then be glorified with our resurrection bodies, and the totality of God's people will descend with him to the earth as he defeats his enemies in that final battle. So, yeah, I, I know that there are some ah and post-mills who, who try to get around the reality of a rapture. I don't, you can't. It's, right, it's as, as explicit as it can possibly be. It's just a question of when does it happen, and how does it relate to the second coming? I think there are simultaneous events that happen at the end of the age and not separated by seven years.
2: Okay, two questions, and I'd love for each of you guys, we'll wrap up with these two questions and love for each of you guys to field them. Um, You walked through three different positions tonight. Um, Two of them probably are held within the room. Post-millennialism is is not as held as widely, Mm -hmm. um, but there's three possible positions that are here. How do we live together? Is this something to divide over? I know the answer to that is no, but but to speak to living in unity, holding these things in charity, um, how do we coexist in the church together?
0: You don't look at that Christian brother or sister who differs with you holding a different scenario from yours and think that somehow they don't love Jesus as much as you do, or that God doesn't love them as much as he loves you and somehow arrogantly say, well, I understand the Bible, and you don't. You're just a doofus, and you hold to a view that doesn't have any basis in in the Word of God. That was me again. Sorry about that. Not your fault. Paul never had to deal with this. Never. Never. That guy had it easy. He He was constantly hoarse from yelling at his (laughs) congregation. No amplification. Um, we thank you, Lord, for amplification. Um, we, have to, we have to unite around the central reality of who Jesus is. Um, um, Charlie wrote in a song, Jesus, you're the center. And all these other things, let them, let them be um, a motivation for joy and interaction and excitement and digging into the Word. And if you come out on the other side from a good friend, love each other and say, hey, but Jesus is coming back. <laughs> we can unite on that. That's what matters. I think it's the, it's the problem that I have seen, and maybe it's, maybe it's uh, more in the, back in the latter half of the 20th century when I was in seminary and first starting out. There was a time when if you didn't agree with that first scenario that I laid out, as I said earlier, you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. You believe that it's just a bunch of myths, and you're spiritualizing these things away. And that is divisive. That's harmful because, first of all, it's not true. Um, and I just think if we could just look at each other and realize that what really unites us, and that we all, folks, my eschatology has changed so many times over the. Do you know how many times I've had to publicly repent for teaching what I thought was wrong? Yeah. I mean, seriously, um, there are. You... Do they know what cassette tapes are? <laughs> Do you know what a cassette I do. tape is? Okay. I
1: do. I had quite a collection.
0: <laughs> Back in the days when I was at that church in Dallas, um, we sent 5,000 tapes a month all across the world for a charge. My teaching of that first view, dispensational pre-tribulation, premillennialism spread throughout the earth through those cassette tapes. Mm. Forgive me, Lord. <laughs> I've had to repent of that. Now, do I think it did damage? I, I hope not. I, I, if anything, I hope it drove people back into the Word of God, and created a hunger for seeing Jesus come back. But um, we are all on a journey, and none of us knows exhaustively the truth. I mean, I'm sitting there telling you, I don't know the ultimate answer about the Antichrist. I wish I did. I got hints, but I I, I don't know if I have the strength to teach it as truth. Um, Your view on that may be right, and mine may be wrong. So we just all have to recognize we're all on a journey— Jesus will straighten us all out when he comes back. And he'll sit on this platform with nobody on his left and right to yes. qualify right. his answers. <laughs> Amen. And he won't need amplification.
2: That's right. I'd love, Josh and Angie, for you to jump in on that yeah. question just in terms of church unity. And yeah, I just,
1: I, you know, the thing I keep coming back to because it's so timely for our cultural moment. I, I, as you read the epistles in the New Testament, the strongest condemnations that we read about, are around three categories. It's around false teaching, denying the authority of Jesus, denying the truth of God's word. It's around sexual immorality, and it's around disunity in the church, biting and devouring each other. And I think those are the three things, like we need to be more vigilant, we need to be more humble, we need to be more sobered by, and we need to be aware of. And so it is uh, the warning against false teaching doesn't mean that everybody gets the card to call people that you disagree with, heretics. It's talking about actual heresy, denying Jesus Christ, denying the power of the gospel, denying the authority of God's word. It doesn't mean areas where Christians are trying to study God's word and know Jesus and we're mistaken and we disagree and we're confused. So those three categories are very strongly condemned and I think we need to fight to maintain the unity
0: that Christ has purchased. Let me just piggyback on that. I'm glad you brought that up. In the New Testament... False teachers are unbelievers. Yes. It, I've taught things that were wrong. Josh and Andrew, Chad, we've all taught things that are wrong. We're probably still teaching some things that are wrong. Yeah. That didn't make us false teachers. Yes. It's the same way with the word false prophet. You know the word the words false prophet in the New Testament never refer to Christians, it refers to deniers of the incarnation. It refers to those who, who are not born again. So um, be careful how those words are used. And I I'm really would caution you all about using the word heresy. Yes. Because historically, this is a good place we can live from tradition. A heresy is a belief that excludes you from the kingdom of God. Yeah. A heresy was denying the, apost- the elements in the Apostles' Creed. It's not heresy if you hold to a post-trib rapture and it turns out to be pre-trib. It's not heresy if you end up on the wrong side of the millennial debate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Heresy is a serious deviation from orthodox teaching that puts you outside the kingdom of Christ. Um, so let's be careful that we don't call people with whom we disagree heretics. That's that's right. that's, that's really unhelpful. Amen.
3: It's a uh, it's it's sad and hard to watch uh, some of the stuff in Ukraine. Like I was reading an article the other day where there was some people who. Um, just two months ago we were living pretty normal lives, sitting around having debates about stuff and watching shows and their life was pretty normal. And then now you just think, you know, someone that was a computer programmer two and a half months ago is making Molotov cocktails and trying to figure out how to defend their country. And I think what's happening often in the West, I know what's happened in my own life is like a little bit of a peacetime mentality. And it's like, well, we we really don't have a real enemy to worry about. So yeah, there's plenty of room to kind of fight and divide and devour one another over stuff that maybe is to greater or lesser degrees important, but at the end of the day, not the main thing. And I think that as, as things continue to get darker in our culture, the call that Jesus is offering us as the church is to actually fight for more resiliency and to realize that we actually do have a real enemy in Satan, sin, and death. And we actually have a responsibility to engage the mission of God and to engage one another in love. And so when that becomes the the more felt reality, I think in the church, it it's a it creates a posture of love towards one another that I think that we just need to recover.
2: Last thing tonight, we've got just a couple of minutes here. Um I know one thing that ministered to me tonight so deeply was just you being up here teaching and having this wealth of scripture flowing out of you, and referencing, and calling to, and not even an open Bible, doing it. Um, I think what, what I'm challenged with as I walk away tonight, what I'd love for us to be challenged as we walk away with, with tonight, you may not understand everything we've talked about, but what you can understand is the invitation to have a life saturated in God's word. An invitation to have a life formed around the teachings of Holy Scripture. Uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so just as we end the night, I would love for you to talk about the the investment that Scripture's made into your life as you're kind of ending pastoral ministry, and then also just any call you'd want to give, and then you can close it up.
0: Oh, um, yeah, briefly. Um, I, I, I I attribute a lot of that to my parents. We were faithfully part of churches Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Y'all remember Wednesday night church? Do you remember Sunday night church? Saying, what is that? Um, just invested in the study of the scriptures. Um, I was mentored by a man here in Oklahoma City named Russ McKnight. He's now with the Lord. He actually founded Faith Bible Church. He was the founding pastor. He was a spiritual father to me. Just kept pushing my nose into the into the text. Um, Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, I'm so grateful for my education at Dallas. Even though I'm kind of persona non grata now because I'm a charismatic amillennialist and there neither. <laughs> um, I just had nothing but the highest respect for my professors and what I learned there and how to study the Bible. I think that's one of the great shortcomings in the church. Today is a lot of Christians don't know how to study the Bible. They don't know how to read scripture. They don't know what questions to ask of the text how to compare one text with another. Um, so I've just, God is, I, I just attribute it to the grace and the mercy of the Lord. He's just kept my finger on the text. And um, hasn't allowed me to, to yield, my, the, yield my conscience to anything other than the inspired word. I mean, let me just say that to you. Never yield your conscience to anything other than the inspired word of God. That has to dictate and shape what you believe and how you behave. And I just, I don't know, just the grace of God.
1: That's the final word. That's right. Hey, let's stand together. hey, let's open our hands to our father. And I just invite you to do a couple of things. Can you begin by just thanking him for the gift of his son? That he went so infinitely beyond sending us prophets and teachers, but he sent his own son. And can you thank the Father and the Son that Jesus promised us that he wouldn't leave us as orphans. But that it would actually be better for us if he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Because he would send the Spirit. Who's our teacher. Who leads us into truth. Who gifts us. Who helps us to experience the love of the Father. And can you can you take a second and just thank the living God that He's spoken, and that we have His Word. And in the midst of all those gifts and all that love, that should create a relationship with His Word. We're far from a guilt-driven duty. We should feel the invitation to communion, the invitation to love, the invitation to fellowship. So, Father, we pray that you would forgive us for our sins, forgive us for what we've done that contradicts your word, forgive us for what we've left undone. And we thank you that in Jesus we're washed white as snow. We pray that as we're sent out from this place tonight, that there would simply be a renewed commitment, a renewed commitment to be formed, to be shaped. Over the course of the rest of our lives, be that a day or another 80 years, to be people of the book. We love you. We thank you. And I pray against confusion. I pray against condemnation. I pray against the insecurities that arise so often when we talk about things that we're unfamiliar with. And I pray that your peace and your grace would guard us and that you would bring us back together soon. We pray
0: all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One, one final word. Is this on? on? There we are. Thank you all for having me here. I feel so honored and blessed to be here. No, don't do that. No, thank you. Um, and keep this in mind. I could be wrong. No, I'm, I'm not wrong about the coming of Jesus. I could be wrong about all the rest, so just know that. God bless you all. That's awesome.